In today's episode, I talk with Jared Saltz about intertextuality. In our churches, we love to use big words. We obfuscate our pedagogy through superfluous grandiloquence, manifesting hubris instead of demureness. See what I mean? Inconceivable. While I might have a speech impediment, I certainly do not want to have a preach impediment. These get in the way of God's message reaching our hearts and minds. Let's dig through those big words and learn something incredible. Before we get started in today's topic, let me remind you to go and check out EdenHollow.com. This is the company I started to start publishing some Bible study guides and spiritual books, but we're starting to branch out into some fiction and even talking to some other authors. We'd love to have you check out what's going on at EdenHollow.com. Now let's jump into today's episode. In today's episode, I talk with Jared Saltz. He is a professor at Florida College and he preaches down in the Tampa area. He has become a fast friend over the years. When I went back as the old guy on campus to get a Bible degree from Florida College, Jared was a, another Bible student there at the time, and he and I hung out and talked a lot about a lot of different topics, including some of the topics we'll talk about today as we discuss intertextuality. He is married, has two beautiful girls, and a great father and a great Bible student. I really think you'll enjoy what he has to share with us today. Let's jump right in. We are going to be talking about intertextuality, um, and that's one of those big words that isn't used very often, so we most definitely need to start with a definition. So, Jerry, give us a definition. Intertextuality. Intertextuality is nothing more or less than reading one text in a relationship with another text rather than as an island on its own. This is something that works for movies and works of literature and it works in the Bible. And the tools we use to do all those things are actually pretty similar. So what are the benefits of uh, trying to do that? One of the main benefits of reading intertextually is that this is the way really that the apostles tend to read their Old Testaments. My favorite example of this uh, is in Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, and when he's talking about this discussion, he says, you know, I don't, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, our ancestors were all under the same cloud. They had passed through the sea. They were all baptized in the Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate of the same spiritual food. They all drank of the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. And, and we, we read this from Paul, and we're thinking, wait, what? That that's not how I read, you know, you know I've, I'm pretty familiar with the story there in Exodus chapter 32, verse six, which is where the, the quote he brings up a little bit later um, in first Corinthians 10 comes from, you know, I'm pretty familiar with the stories of Balaam and the women coming to camp from numbers 25 or with Moses striking the rock in numbers chapter 20. And yet when I was reading those texts, I didn't think it's, Oh, the rock that, that followed them was, was Jesus. But to Paul, it is clear. And that's not because of what we tend to read, which is sort of this historical critical method or thinking of exactly a book and a chapter and a verse and defining what this word means. But instead is about this broader concept of realizing that a lot of these things are about Jesus. And if we connect these texts together, then we realize we can learn a lot more. So he says, okay, this rock that struck, well, you know, Jesus or God is often called a rock 
In Deuteronomy 32, we read like the rock, his work is perfect. All of his ways are just a faithful God without bias. A little bit later, we read, you know, he abandoned God who was scorned, but he became a rock of salvation. Or in Deuteronomy 32, verse 18, you ignore the rock who gave you birth. You forgot the God who gave birth to you. And so if God is often called a rock, and we know that in Isaiah, we, and in Zechariah, we look on him who's pierced or struck, and this rock gives forth living water that saves the people. Well, if you're Paul, how could you not look at this rock that Moses strikes and say, actually, that's Jesus. He's the, the stone the builders rejected. And again, the way we tend to read things, you know, if you were preaching that, uh, they'd be like, no, Adam, you're making stuff up. There's no way. But to Paul, it is. And that's actually how most frequently um, the New Testament writers tend to read is by laying these texts alongside of each other and getting more out of them than what is just on the surface. So is this uh, maybe what Jesus is referring to back in Luke chapter 24 when he says, uh, you know, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for him all the things written concerning him and all the scriptures. Generally, we take that and we mean, okay, well, that's just he interpreted all of these specific messianic prophecies. Is there something more to that than messianic prophecies? Yeah, you know, that's a great passage to bring up there in Luke chapter 24, because in Luke chapter 24, three different times, he says, hey, didn't you know that the Son of Man must be delivered unto the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise from the dead. Over and over and over, he says, on the third day it will rise from the dead. Uh, particularly in verse 46 of Luke 24, it said, It is written that the Christ should suffer and then on the third day rise from the dead. Well, Adam, wh where's that passage in the Old Testament that it says, you know, Jesus is going to die or the Messiah is going to die and the third day be risen from the dead? Well, there isn't any text at all in the Old Testament that comes from. What instead that there is, is a constant and consistent teaching in the Bible that says life comes on the third day. Uh, life comes on the third day in Genesis chapter 22 when uh, Abraham's taking Isaac. We read, on the third day he lifted up his eyes and sees the place from afar. And we know that that what's not going to happen is death, but instead Isaac's going to be saved from death and brought back to life. Um, in Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, you know, after two days he will revive us, and on the third day he will raise us up. Well, that's, again, this idea of life coming. Or even in Jonah chapter 1, where he spent three days in the belly of the fish. Well, he is. that's a resurrection story when he's brought back up. And we, we see that over and over and over again throughout the whole Bible. Hezekiah saved from his sickness that should have ended up in death on the third day in 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 5. Uh, Queen Esther is spared from death on the third day in Esther chapter 5, verse 1. So Jesus says, actually, when you're looking at the whole Bible, you don't need to just be looking for specific quotations and passages and prophecies and messianic tones, but instead recognize that there's a way God does things. There are patterns to what God is doing. And we should be reading our Bibles to look for those patterns and laying those texts alongside each other, or we're actually missing out on a whole lot of things that Jesus chastises the disciples for a lot for not understanding. So that answers probably a question that people often have, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You, know, you have Peter make, or yeah, excuse me, Paul making the, <laughs> the point there that uh, he's buried and he's raised uh, according to scripture, on the third day. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, again, 
like you said, that's not really ever said in Scripture, but Paul recognizes it's said in Scripture. Right. And those sorts of things are what uh, the biblical authors recognize a lot. And I think that we're supposed to be recognizing is there's patterns to how God does things, but there's not an easy way for us to recognize it until we start thinking that way. And the funny thing is, outside of the Bible, we're actually pretty good at reading that sort of way. You know, if, if I say once upon a time, uh, to start out a story, you know exactly what you're going to get into. You know, you're like, okay, this is a fairy tale, and I know exactly how this is going to play out. Well, why? Except we've seen those a bunch of times before. And the same way, too, you know, if you're watching, you know, the newest Spider-Man, whichever, you know, they always like to remake Spider-Man movies, you can watch that movie on its own and enjoy it. But how much better is it is if you recognize it's not just commenting on itself, but it's actually coming from the stream of tradition, these other Spider-Man movies, these other superhero movies, these other situations, and even the comics, if you're into that. And then you get all these little Easter eggs and an appreciation for what the authors are trying to do. And I think we can use those same sorts of tools when we're reading the Bible. So what is the difference between this and what gets called the allegorical interpretation of Scripture? You know, that was a big thing. It probably still is a big thing in some circles, but uh, a big thing back in the early centuries of Christianity where they would take, for instance, Song of Solomon and apply an allegorical view that it is really about Jesus and his church, not about a man and a woman and possibly a third man and any of the other 15 views of that book. Uh, is this connected or is this something separate? And if it is something separate, how do we control our interpretation of this? Because that's part of the problem with the allegorical view historically is that it just absolutely got out of control and there were no checks and balances to the interpretation. Yeah. So what I would say is that the allegorical method, um, and this really comes from what Paul talks about in Galatians chapter four, when he's talking about Sarah and Hagar, and he says, actually, these women are two mountains, if you read it allegorically. And he uses that actually exact same word. And, and, and you know, we can read that and say, I, you know, I read Genesis and I don't remember anywhere in, you know, Genesis 12 through 22 or anything like that about Sarah and Hagar being two mountains. It's like, well, you, you got to read it allegorically. Allegorical reading is one type, a specific sort of very narrow type of intertextuality. Because intertextuality is just combining two texts together and saying, actually, I think these are related. Um, at, at its highest level, it's just a recognition that even though the Bible is written by a bunch of different human authors, it's got one divine author, and that's the Holy Spirit. And so if it's got one author, then it's all connected. It's all one story that leads to Jesus. And so we should read it alongside of each other. Now, you're right that we can kind of go um, crazy with the allegorical method as the church fathers, the rabbis, or, you know, really anybody else um, at that time was doing. And I think that the best way to sort of make it useful and keep it from going too crazy is to recognize that this should be a supplement, not a replacement of what we're already doing. What we want is really more tools in our toolbox and not fewer ones. And if we're reading carefully, then we should see that all this works together. We shouldn't have an allegorical reading or an intertextual reading that goes against the grain of Scripture because its entire purpose is actually to read everything within the grain of Scripture. 
I think a really good example is how maybe we teach about baptism. It is absolutely valid and true to say, hey, Acts 2.38 says every one of you be baptized, and so baptism is necessary. But a different way of approaching that, and one that perhaps is more powerful, is by saying, let's look at this type of salvation and how God saves people from the beginning until the end. Well, God creates life in Genesis 1 by separating the waters and bringing the world through water. Uh, a little bit later in Genesis chapter 6, when he saves Noah and his people, he's saving them through water. You know, this is what Peter says, right? Baptism corresponds to the flood. Or it, when we read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, um, Paul says they were baptized into Moses by going through the Red Sea. Well, you can see a bunch of different examples of that. And so when we get to Acts chapter 238, we're not saying, oh, well, this is just this one proof text and... You know, how are we supposed to have seen this happen? Instead, you say, well, this fits because this is how God's always done things. He's always saved people through water. That's from the very beginning until the very end. And so those aren't against each other, but rather complement each other. And so the way to kind of keep some reins on allegory is to make sure that it's still telling the same story as what we have elsewhere in the Bible and in the things that we're looking for. It should add more color and more depth and a more appreciation for God's word rather than becoming something that we try to manipulate in order to prove our pet peeve. So I, I find that interesting because if you look at Galatians chapter four and what Paul's doing there, he actually goes against the grain of their understanding. He goes against the, uh, what is the more obvious way of interpreting those passages, you know, teaching, you know, Isaac is the son of promise. Therefore, the descendants of Isaac would be the children of the promise. And in Galatians 4, he goes, nope, <laughs> I'm going to turn this on its head and teach the exact opposite, which is, yes, Isaac is the son of promise, but it is not the, the physical children of Isaac, but it is the spiritual children of Isaac. And the physical children of Isaac really come from Hagar. You know, so is there maybe a sense in which inspiration plays a role in giving him more license than we should take? Or is there a, maybe some guiding principles in what Paul's doing there that help us draw good conclusions, even if they are re-explaining a text? Yeah, I think the biggest shift in Galatians 4 occurs in that when Paul is on, on the road to Damascus, it's not just that he is physically has his eyes opened and can see again. There's a real spiritual sense to this as well, that all of a sudden he sees the whole Bible laid out and he says, wait a second, this is actually all about Jesus. Now that is the same uh, language that we see in Luke chapter 24. Um, if you remember when they, after Jesus finally reveals himself, they say, you know, their eyes were open, they see him and their hearts were burning within them. That's the shift. The Paul would not say that this is reading against the grain of Scripture. Instead, he says, you didn't understand this was actually all about Jesus beforehand. And once you accept that one thing, that all the Scripture is about Jesus, he says all of this falls immediately into place. And there's really no other way to read this way. So although, yes, I do think we see some... I don't know if you want to call it special license or probably I would say special insight that Paul has because he's been inspired. He's seen the risen Lord. I think he would say that we all should have that same sort of insight. 
because we all who are Christians have accepted that this is all God's plan. This is all from the beginning. And even if you look at Galatians 4, you know, in 22 and 23 and all this stuff, it might look like it's sort of out of nowhere. If you look really closely at it, then you see it does align with a lot of different scriptures that his connection of Hagar to Mount Sinai is because of where, um, you know, Ishmael lives. Or we see that this connection of the questions of promise is what we see in Isaiah 54 verse 1. Or other places in Isaiah. He actually, Paul even references that text in, in Isaiah um, 51 and in 51, uh, 51 and 54 when he's talking about this. So if you look at all of Scripture and not just the questions in Genesis, and if you have that sort of key to understanding everything, which is Jesus, then it's completely the reading with the grain of Scripture. And I think Paul would probably say, this is stuff that y'all should figure out as well. And that should be things that we should always be aiming to do is saying, hey, how is this about Jesus? How is this teaching about the church? What are the implications of these older texts for our own lives? Because that's what Paul's doing. And I think that's really what we're all trying to do in some way. Okay. So how does type and anti-type play into this? I imagine it's just another form of intertextuality, uh, but obviously it's different than allegory. It's, it's maybe a little more direct than allegory. Maybe a little less direct. I'm not sure how I would uh, actually rank those, but uh, how would that play into all of this? That's a great question. There's a lot of different types of intertextuality. Allegory is kind of the one that we know, or, or maybe some of us are more familiar with in some ways, because that's this extended connection where all of the different characters and events and pieces kind of tie to something else. So it's pretty one-to-one -one correspondence. With a type or an anti-type, it's not quite as broad or deep. Instead, you're taking a piece of something and saying this one piece connects to something else rather than everything about it connecting to everything. A good example that we might be more familiar with is when we're reading the parables of Jesus. Only a few of them are actual allegories. Most of them, if you're trying to allegorically read the parables where every little piece of every little parable connects to something else, you're missing the point. There's, a, there's only one kind of key point to these parables that you're dealing with. So with this type and anti-type, you get that element where you're picking one piece of a character and not necessarily their entire life to connect to Jesus. And, and these can be interesting because sometimes they don't go the way we might think. Uh, one of my favorite examples is Samson. You read through the story of Samson and Judges and he is not a good person. Um, and yet he's a type of Christ. You know, he's sold for silver. He's betrayed by his brothers. He is, um, you know, tortured before he's killed. He accomplishes more in his death than in his life. All these things, you're like, oh, well, Samson's a type of Christ. And you're like, yes, but that doesn't mean that Samson must be a good savior and perfectly sinless as Jesus was. It's just that certain elements of his life match to Jesus. And those sorts of things are are. are all over the place. And that shouldn't surprise us. And that's how Jesus is able to take every passage, right? He says, and show how it's really about him. I think you'll agree. There's a lot to chew on in this episode. Jared has given us a lot of different ideas and a different approach to scripture that I think probably all of us are familiar with. We've done some of this, but to do it to the degree and with the intentionality that he's talking about 
it really makes the scriptures come alive. There's so much more that Jared and I talked about that instead of doing a Monopisode this week, I'm just going to do a part two of my interview with Jared, and we'll try to get that out in the next day or two. Uh, Thank you so much again for listening. I hope this has been challenging and good for you and helping you see the Bible in a brand new way, not in a way that would dismiss what you've known before, but would just help you grow into a deeper understanding of how to approach scripture the same way the apostles did, the same way the early Christians would have. I hope you'll tune back in. If you've got anything we can pray for you about or any topic you would like to hear us discuss on Preach Impediment, let us know. Go to preachimpediments.com in order to reach us and to contact us in some way that we can help you. Thank you again for listening. Until next time.